Welcome to the Bug Hunters Cafe. Thanks. Uh, hi, Jason. Where is the unicorn? He's in back. He wanted to learn a new hobby, so we took up wood turning. Ooh, that sounds harmless. Has he made anything cool yet? Uh, so far, 27 paper towel holders. Yes, and I'm running out of room on the counter. Hmm. Maybe we should start giving them away to customers. What, with every coffee a free paper towel holder? Sure, why not? So, who are we meeting uh, with today? Oh, my friend Joshua Jacobs. He's a PhD in applied mathematics with a passion for data science and 3D visualization, which he's been applying to neuroscience for the past nine years. He's also amazing at mentorship, team building, networking with other people, guitar. <gasps> cool. So, when will he be here? Oh, he, he got here two hours ago. He's the one teaching wood turning to the unicorn. Oh, hey, there he is. Another two paper towel holders. Oh, joy. Well, at least the unicorn seems proud of himself. Hey, Joshua. Sorry you got roped into that. Can I get you anything? Uh, the coffee sounds so terrific. They're the ones sponsoring these chats. I, I actually, maybe, I'm, I'm a little vanilla here. Um, I like... I always go into my favorite cafe, which is Cafe Steam in Rochester, Minnesota, and I order a medium latte that I go and I sit and I observe the other customers and sometimes for months. And then I say hello. And this is one of my networking strategies, you see, um, is go to the same cafe at the same time as often as possible and observe. And by the time I actually say hello, I'm familiar with the people and they are with me. It's bizarre how that proximal familiarity um, makes stepping on somebody's toes a networking opportunity. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll go ahead and grab your stalker latte. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't tease. I do it too. I do it too. It works. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to give a warning to our listeners that this is a terrible dating advice. It is. It's terrible dating advice. I entirely agree. Never use this technique with that kind of intention. It's it's disgusting. It's It, it will backfire on you. You'll get Or a, you will get a series at Netflix. No, no. You'll get a hot latte to the face. You do not want to do this. Yeah. So, Josh. Yes, sir. Let us begin this uh, unofficial official talk. Tell us about you. What's um, the coolest thing you did today? I finished We Are Legion by Dennis E. Taylor um, about a bunch of robot clones that go exploring the galaxy and, you know, defend against evil. And how are they called? Bob. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not an acronym. No, it's We Are Bob. Um, <laughs> They're all Bob. That is like Bob one, Bob two, etc. But they decide to rename themselves to like Khan and Homer Simpson and um, Calvin. And one objects very strongly to being called Hobbes. Um, but it's 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 really funny and very cute. Um, I enjoyed it. And my eight year old daughter asked me why I was trying to finish it while she was telling me about um, parakeet eggs. Okay. The next question is, what is so awesome about parakeet eggs? So, um, 
her teacher brought a parakeet egg home from the pet store um, because the the um, pet store had a male parakeet and a female parakeet. They sold the female parakeet, and a day later they found the egg at the bottom of the female parakeet's cage. And so the teacher brought it home and put it in an incubator and turned it over three times a day. And like within 18 days, he had a baby parakeet that he had to feed with an eyedropper. Um, and so I'm just hearing this story from my daughter and it's all very, very adorable and cute. That's the best teacher ever. Here is your medium latte. And, um, I have heard snatches of conversation about robots and parakeets, so I'm going to assume this went the usual non-sequitur direction, and... <laughs> this is who I am. I'm sorry. Unapologetically non-sequitur. Oh, I never said there was anything wrong with going non-sequitur. I, I mean, it's I, the usual is the key word here. I mean, it's okay. uh, we usually go non-sequitur. <laughs> Excellent. So that's really the... Like, I... Um, I am moving on at, at the moment. I'm moving on from a position at uh, Flywheel who did um, the curation of clinical research data and all sorts of cool visualizations of, of uh, brains. And I've even taken um, to doing a longitudinal study of um, a, a close relative's brain. Uh, she got a scan 10 years ago. Um, and one just recently. And so I decided to put them into um, something called FreeSurfer to do a parcellation of the cortical and subcortical regions of her brain and then compare her brain 10 years ago to her brain now. And all I can say is there's a bit of gray matter recession away from the meninges, um, which is basically the layer right between your skull and your brain. Um, but this happens to everyone um, over the age of, of say, 20. Um, we get this retreat of the gray matter away from the skull as we age. Um, so that's, that's no, no big. But what we're really looking at is do any of the subcortical regions change in overall shape and volume in that 10 years? Um, that would be much more of a concern that I would. But, you know, um, but, but then, you know, you, you, you get to spit out all of these really cool three-dimensional um, visualizations of brains. And I can imagine this makes for some fascinating, you know, holiday Thanksgiving conversation. You know, when if, if anything starts getting really awkward, that relative, you can go, well, you know, I know more about your brain than you do. <laughs> Things are a little bit closer than that, shall we say. Um, <laughs> I, I see this relative more often than just on holidays. Um um, oh, good. You have more opportunities. <laughs> yeah. And then I have another, exactly. I have another relative that works in the COVID ward at uh, Mayo Clinic as a nurse practitioner, telling me all sorts of things about, um, like, the, about the pulmonologist and, you know, the different kinds of people that are being admitted, you know, what their pre-existing conditions are, um, the distribution of, like, diabetics, obese, elderly, and I'm like, wow. Um, so I, I get I get the inside scoop on a couple of different angles here. Somebody's brain, COVID ward, you know, it, it's, it's a little weird. 
that is pretty awesome though and, and you use you mentioned 3d visualizations you use you know programming and data science to, to analyze this stuff yes um, well if you call like looking at statistical analyses of somebody's subcortical regions data analysis or data science okay that that that, that word has the word data science has been such a ambiguous moniker um, for a long time I'm like just doing mere like oh to statisticians um, data science means one thing and to computer scientists it can mean something a bit different um, the statisticians are famously jealous of some of calling parts of their field data science without their permission to do so um, and the computer scientists are like well, so we can just automate all this stuff. What do we need you for? Um, so, you know, I, I, I come from um, uh, an academic background where, you know, uh, I was used to like math and stats departments being kind of fused together. And then as I got into bigger and bigger academic institutions, saw how acrimoniously divorced they were from one another. Um I'm like, whoa, this is such a shame. They have so much to offer one another. Um, why would they want to get a divorce? And, and, so, and somewhere, somehow, some criminologist is going to listen to this conversation and is going to immediately understand the motive of why a mathematician beat a programmer to death with a pocket protector. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is not this is not my first run in, you know, hear, hearing about hearing about kind of what what goes weird with with the academic world because I have a I have a friend in Boston who studies whale ears. Uh, this is what he does. Is he uses Python to analyze data for whale ears. Oh. Um and he's gotten to do dissections on humpback whales that were beached and things like that and anyway, so he he actually has access, I'm not kidding, he actually has access to a freezer full of ears at the university so you know you you think you have weird friends this is awesome <laughs> absolutely so uh he, he was actually one of my technical reviewers for my books so you know that was that was <laughs> so python has become such a de facto language across um scientific fields because it's so accessible but um when you have somebody that doesn't have like say me um, a lot of experience um, living in just one computer language at length, um, you get all sorts of crazy commenting styles and code structures and people not even knowing what uh, PEP8 protocol is and, you know, and not caring just because it's getting the job done. And it's horrendous code to read. Oh, my God. Um, so th that's what you don't want. You don't want um, a... You don't want a neuroscientist um, writing Python code, um, or at least maintaining the code. You want them writing what they want, and then having um, somebody a little more versed in, in, in code keeping protocol. Yes, like Boyan, um, yeah. to, to clean it up for them and inquire what in the hell they were thinking when they named this function. Um, that's what they do uh, for a living, actually. I basically am, I don't know, it's data engineering, MLOps, they're a bunch of words, but I basically speak with scientists, take their 2,000 lines of code where each variable is named x1, x2, x3, and so on. Take the 
scientific work that they use is because that's the comment. Like, yeah, I just use this uh, work and then transform that into code. And then turn that into production site and all those things. And, and so they can share it with their colleagues and their colleagues won't run away screaming. Yes. And they can say, oh, this is so beautiful. Exactly. They're such a good programmer. There's a tool out there that um, our friend Laïs um, worked at a company um, called Quantum Black. And while she was working there, she uh, she got the help on this tool called Kedro. And Kedro is this really neat data science tool for Python that um, I have not used it. This is kind of secondhand knowledge and looking at the website and, and, and hearing about it. But it, it basically, it helps clean up that data pipeline and make it more maintainable. So it, it helps encourage, you know, the non-programmers who are maintaining the code to, you know, do things in a way that's actually maintainable and replicatable, et cetera, um, by just kind of automating some of the stuff that's going to be nauseating to them. But I can imagine with those sorts of things, then you're, you're going to wind up with all sorts of errors and bugs. And I, I know bugs in your field are really... They take on a different flavor. One that comes to mind for me is when we had to throw out all of the functional MRIs for about twenty years, from about twenty, from about a twenty-year span, because of a floating-point error in um, the uh, in the code that has been in use since was it nineteen eighty whatever, um, and there was a floating-point error in that code, and no one caught it for twenty years, and it wound up messing up the data visualization for twenty years worth of fMRIs. Yeah. yeah, but there's the difference between the qualitative analysis and the quantitative analysis, where the qualitative analysis can still give you a general picture of what blood, blood oxygen levels are effective in different regions of the brain for your fMRI. However, the, the quantitative analysis is going to be off. So... The, the figures and numbers are going to be totally wrong, whereas um, the, the qualitative analysis of these brain regions were more active than these other brain regions are going to still hold. If I remember the bug story, though, mm -hmm. it was that part of which brain regions were actually active that got oh. messed up. Oh, it was actually no. that. And so where they say, well, this part lit up and this part didn't light up, that's the data that got screwed up. That's oh, why they have to throw no. it all out because they went, we don't know what happened, but this data is, is now unusable. We can't, we can't verify any of it because it's oh, crap. floating point errors in the core data. They would have to redo oh. the brain scans. Oh, God. So, yeah. So having that, like, say, a floating point error, which would flip the sign of the entire... Um, uh, variable in question, or add uh, orders of ma add or subtract orders of magnitude in a random fashion, that would be horrendous. Yeah, they had a whole a whole bunch of cognitive psychologists just started weeping because oh. the entire foundation for their field crumbled out from underneath them because somebody that word to the wise, do not use floating point numbers for absolutely critical things that you don't want rounded funny. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's you don't right. you ever use them for finance. You know, yeah. you never use them for finance because you, you can't trust them. You use integers. Yes, yes, because you don't, you 
you don't like unlike um, what was that movie Superman three that with Richard Pryor you don't take a fraction of a cent. Um, what? Old well, Christian- that was my scheme. <laughs> no, I have to change it. I thought it was original. I'm I'm just trying to wrap my head. I'm just trying to visualize Richard Pryor as Superman right now. No, no, no. Richard Pryor wasn't <laughs> Superman. Richard- he was the main evil. Uh, okay, because I was going to say I cannot picture Richard Pryor as Super. That, that's 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 like trying to picture Jim Carrey as Batman. I mean, it just does not connect. Oh, no, 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 no. He- Jim Carrey would make an awesome Batman <laughs> and a Riddler in the same movie. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. No, no. So Richard Pryor. It was. I think it was a uh, mid to late '80s movie. I'm sure we can look it up. But I'm just riffing. Um, uh, he played this computer genius that um, ended up like taking all of the rounding errors for the, the financial transactions and sticking them into a bank account uh, and become, you know, became extremely rich from like just skimming off the rounding errors. Um, and then he was like, oh, he was busted and says, well, that sucks for you. Um you know, you, you, you've such a naughty genius now. Um, how about you do something really impactful with your mind? And so he creates a supercomputer that Superman has to fight, et cetera, et cetera. Drama, drama, drama. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, so, but in reality, that wouldn't happen because we weren't, we don't use floating points for finance. So, exactly. or we shouldn't be using floating points so for finance. This is, this is like... So that's the most unrealistic part for you. Not the Superman, not the... Exactly. <laughs> no, no, it's just the fact that using the floating point yes. integer. That's a believability error right there. <laughs> this breaks immersion for me. Absolutely. So, so um... There's Jurassic like, Park. Hey, you know, it took it, did, it would take a lot longer to get into a Unix system than that. Yes. Yeah. So there's a there's an imaging format that um, all images come from. All all clinical images come through what's called the DICOM format. Um, you you take you take um, ultrasound. You take MRI. You take uh, positron emission tomography. You take the, CT, you take x-ray, like all images are now stored in this DICOM format that has all sorts of crazy information about the manufacturing scanner, about the patient themselves, about um, the different parameters that were used to make the scan, just a whole horde of stuff. Um, But yet many of these, like at least the ones that I was using recently, they only took 8 and 16-bit um, unsigned integers for their imaging data. No, no floating point. Mm-hmm. So if, if I found like floating point numbers or any kind of floats or any signed integers, I had to convert them to eight to 16 bit, um, unsigned integers in order for them to show up in the viewer. Mm. Okay. Um, it's valid. So that also means taking, you know, whatever imaging format I'm given and converting it to, you know, eight, eight bit floating or eight bit unsigned integers. So, oh, that was easy. And then having a company that we were working for say, can you document this? Can you point to documentation that says this, that this works and that you are not changing anything? And I'm like, oh, by the way, I'm leaving. It's this guy's uh, 
<laughs> no, no, I cannot. Uh, no, I, you might be interested to know on the topic of, of of floating point. There was this fascinating book called "The End of Error" by John Gustafson, and um, he documented this whole concept he had for a new type of um, a new way to store decimal numbers. And the guy who is kind of you know the big mucky muck over you know the floating point standard, the IEEE floating point standard, uh, was like, "Oh, it'll never work. It'll never work." And uh, so John Gustafson went and built his own CPU to prove that it worked, and it worked. And the crazy thing is, like, when you when you understand how this idea of the unum works, is like you almost look at this and go, "Why are we? Why have we not been using this for the last thirty years?" Because what he does is the the fundamental flaw with floating point integers is that or floating point numbers is that they lie. And we all know this; they lie. You know, it, it's like you know, it's it's when we say you know three point. Uh, zero. What we're really saying is two point nine 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 nine. You know, it's like it's really imprecise. You know, we kind of we we kind of try and 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 approximate the decimal part, but we never really get to the decimal part. No, it's 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 a conversion between your binary representation of your floating point number or your floating point decimal or fraction, and that of your decimal notation because they're not the same. You know, you can. You can calculate um, an arbitrary place. You can per calculate arbitrary numbers in pi. You can say, "Oh, give me the five um, hundredth digit in pi." Arbitrary. You can you can choose an arbitrary number digit in pi that you want, um, and you can get it, be it five million, five billion, etc. Mm -hmm. But you're gonna get it in base sixteen. But converting yeah. that to base 10, that's where the real problem is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the way he kind of gets around this, and I'm probably going to hash up this explanation here pretty badly, but um, in short is he has a value, because you have you have four odd values anytime you're dealing with numbers. You've got zero, negative zero, infinity, and negative infinity. And I think it was negative zero, I'd have to double check. He, he repurposed negative zero because negative zero doesn't show up in the real world. And so he took negative zero, I think it was, uh, unless it was one of the other ones, and he set that to be of special value in this in this scheme that means we don't know. I have no idea. At this point, I'm just you know blowing smoke out my ear. And so what you wind up doing is you have the whole number part and then you have the decimal part and both of them represented in an integer-like fashion but you're honest about when that precision cuts off. So if it's 2.567, it stores it as 2 and 567 and who knows. And so it just stops pretending that it's got precision that it doesn't have and it it literally shorts out at a certain point. And he's got all the math set up so that this I have no idea is just kind of built into this system and so you can't so you you never wind up with it lying to you when you add 2.5 whatever to 2.736 whatever and get three places of precision because you can't the most precision you can get is one place of precision because that uncertainty cuts off at the second decimal place no oh, that's 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 a great uh, way of of engineering uncertainty quantification into like hardware calculations um that's actually really really important because of this entire field of mathematics called uncertainty quantification 
in which you 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 look at what you know and you look at how well you know that and you understand that outside the boundaries of that you your your certainty of knowing falls off um, outside of your stand, your standard deviation and then you can do calculations with your quantities and narrow in on this is what we know and these are the probabilities outside of that range like um, what is what is the probability of a a tsunami in um, a particular um, region in Washington State after an earthquake in Japan? You know, it, you can start making these kinds of calculations. So it's all about it's all about strategic honesty, basically. Yes, exactly. It's mind blowing. And I actually haven't worked in anywhere close to that field in getting on ten years. <laughs> so I have to say what I don't know, which is, of course, this strategic honesty. Uh, and, you know, it's very Socratic to admit what you do not know. Absolutely. You don't know what you don't know. But if you do know what you don't know, please tell us. That doesn't make any sense at all. No, it does. It does. <laughs> so this is this is about, like, um, instead, of, instead of BSing people, you're like, I don't know. And I'm not going to pretend I know. Um, and if you know something different, um, this is this is my best guess. If you have a better guess, let's combine our, our best guesses and see if we can iterate to a solution that can work better than something either of us would try in our own. Um, and that's uh, perhaps my own approach to um, coding. I, I, I can't do a waterfall approach um, like get all the specs ready and go. Um, it never really works for me um, because I never know the all of the requirements ahead of time. I mean, gosh, um, it, there's, there's always some, there's always some correction in motion. Like I was working for New York University and another large imaging company and here's all of their constraints and here are their requirements and built everything to their constraints and requirements. And lo and behold, it doesn't behave like they expected because they didn't communicate a particular requirement um, that the constraints contradicted with their unspoken requirement. Oops. Um, <laughs> yeah. Communicate. Well, it's, it's why we say that programming is mostly communication. Like, you know, you can know all the languages on Earth, but if you can't communicate, you're going to have a very hard time shipping usable code. Yeah. But, you know, on the uh, on the front end of that, before I was even involving, yes, there was definitely a communication issue. Say, it's like, oh, there's this hype, there's this selling, and then the the actual deliverable doesn't quite feel like what they were sold. <laughs> um, and so, well, you, you do your best as the engineer on the line for delivering it, especially if you weren't part of the sale. And that's, uh, that's why I, I like um, extremely functionally diverse teams. Like, you have people that specialize in the front end. You have people that specialize in data science. You have people that are, you know, like 
customer facing and and sales minded, and you have this um, this entire merging of of interests and um, abilities to be able to um, work well together in a non hopefully non competitive way, and that takes. Um, that takes that that nebulous idea of team building, building a coherence, building um, an ethic, uh, building a culture that works. Okay, so you, you were saying you had some sort of business business premise pun thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, during the uh, pandemic, um, there's just been so much disconnection. So, like, I remember going up to like just walking through the office, you know, there's a couple of dozen people, you know, and just observing just their body language, like if they're focused or not, um, or if they're kind of like coasting a little bit and whether or not, and if I have a question, you know, I'm like, Oh, how are you doing? Introduce myself, who I am, how are you doing today, et cetera, et cetera, or going to the water cooler or the coffee dispenser or the ice cream that's in the fridge, um, uh, or the snacks that they have available, and just talking to people, just these random collisions that go on. Um, that because because culture is not does is it top it, it has a both a top down component and a bottom up component, but where culture lives is in the direct interactions between people. It, it doesn't live in in mass meetings or all hands or or what have you where people are on the spot it lives in those very personal interactions between people and so the thing about this pandemic has done is it severed those those very personal interconnections with each other that are sometimes yes wrought with um uncertainty and risk and but it's very human so i thought of this called this thing called like a random collision coffee hour, um, where basically you 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 are you know like you're kind of randomly assigned somebody. You can choose yes or no, and you know just, just confirm that you actually want to talk to the CEO or not, or somebody that you can have this random conversation with, say 10, 15 minutes for an hour. These random interactions with people for team building. And the, the here's it's like speed dating with without uh, the romance, so that's the hook, without the line in the sinker. Hi, Buck Hunters Cafe. Marta speaking. Yes, we are still open twenty four seven. You can find us at buckhunters.cafe, and on Twitter, Dev, and Instagram as Buck Hunters Cafe. Our special today is a free paper towel holder with every order, while supplies last. What wood? Hmm, I think it's oak. Oh, we have plenty, don't worry. Yes, see you soon. No, I'm not selling them for you. Yes, well... You should have thought of that before you made 29 paper towel holders. Before you made 32 paper towel holders? Oh dear.
my friend who has a big uh, company does that. Uh, yeah. Every week uh, they have an algorithm that uh, groups up uh, three or uh, four people and they have a chat together over the coffee. Yeah, this is this is meant for like pairs because the you you have different group dynamics um, depending on how many people are there. Your 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 personable interactions start really fading out around four or five people. Um, you you start behaving more and more like a group rather than a set of individuals that are getting to know one another. Um, for my for my completely remote team now, granted this is a little different because. Um, uh, because, you know, I, my, my team is entirely programmers. And, you know, I'd probably adopt something more like what you're talking about once there's non-programmers. Because you want to get programmers out of their department a lot. Um, because it's too easy to get caught up in programming mindset and forget that there's, you know, practical applications for what we do. But within the context of programming, I do um, have... We do a lot of pair programming at, 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 at my company. Um, especially since we're fully remote. But one of the things that we do is um, while most of the time you can pick, you know, pair programming partners, you can just say, hey, you know, you, would you help me with this? Or this seems to be your specialty. We help with that. Or can I help you with this? You know, there's that voluntary component. There's also one assigned pair a week for a month, every month, because it's a six hour week internship. So every every month I assign a pair, you know, someone to someone else as, as a pair and I keep switching it up. So um, that way, everybody on the team will at some point or another have to sit down and pair program with somebody else. And I tell them, you know what, who's driving and who's navigating is up to you. Whose code you're working on is up to you. How your dynamic works out is up to you. But you just work together. And it's created some great opportunities for programmers to kind of get to know each other, um, get outside of their usual uh, their usual code base or get a different perspective on their code. And it's, 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 it's great. It's cool to see people voluntarily, um, say, Hey, I want to pair program with you because we always get something done when we work and, you know, they're crossing, you know, uh, those kind of invisible divisions between projects and going, Hey, you know, I think I could probably help you with that. And they're just getting together spontaneously. And it's, it's amazing to watch. That's exactly, that's the, that's cultural connective tissue right there. By strengthening individual relationships and building confidence in one another's strengths, um, that that there is cultural connective tissue. Yeah, that is that is great. I um, yeah. And this is this is weird. Like I find myself less and less interested in the actual technology, um, and more and more interested in the overlap between technology and culture. You are evolving into Gerald Weinberg. Who the heck is Gerald Weinberg? Okay, Gerald Weinberg is a psychologist who just kind of gravitated towards the programming field, and he wrote some of the most important books in the programming field on how people in programming interact, how projects work. Um, He's uh, my favorite Gerald Weinberg quote, and I've, I've... brought this up in the cafe before my favorite favorite gerald weinberg quote is if pro if builders built buildings the way that programmers write programs and the first woodpecker to come along would destroy civilization yeah 
This is this is Gerald Weinberg. He's he's absolutely genius. Um, oh, I've I like like yes. Okay, weird fact. I programmed in probably over seventeen different languages in my entire life. Um, wow. You know, starting with Basic, Assembler, uh, Turtle Graphics. Um, you know, I, I programmed on the Apple IIe's and. Um, just direct machine code, bunch of different versions of C, bunch of different versions of Python, Object Pascal, Oracle Power Objects, um, SQL, if you can call that a language, many variants of that. Uh, <laughs> uh, MATLAB, if you can call that a language. Um, um, yeah, um, Python, Go, um, and I'm missing a couple here and there. Um, PHP. <laughs> Um, Perl. He, he, even he chokes on PHP. Everyone chokes on PHP. Uh, it's it's meant as an object oriented language, but just its syntax and its structure is just it, the way what people do with it is horrendous. It just doesn't look pretty. C looks if you done right. C looks prettier. Oh than yeah, C is C is very C is like working with wire. It's like artwork with wire. It's it's really unruly. It's really difficult to work with. You can make a royal mess of it really easily. But if you get it right, it's absolutely beautiful. PHP is like splatter paint. Yes. <laughs> it, you know, it, it, um, there was a programming comic called Commit Strip that made the disturbing observation that PHP is technically the father of. Uh, React, because React was developed by PHP programmers okay. at Facebook, um, and PHP was a critical piece of the infrastructure in developing React okay. in the first place. That's kind of a disturbing realization. <laughs> Explain yeah, so much. I, yeah, the, the object, like early on, I started interacting with JavaScript, and its document object model was such a turn off um, that I, I haven't gone back. Um, and, and people are doing some great things with JavaScript these days. I have great, great respect for my uh, colleagues and my younger brother, who is a front-end developer. But I tried working with JavaScript 12 years ago, and I still have nightmares. <laughs> I'm not going there. No, I, well, so I'm, I'm in the I, same boat. Is, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I, I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not um, a huge fan of JavaScript. I, 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 I do kind of sort of enjoy working in it because it's so terrible. I enjoy a challenge. I like debugging seg faults, so I'm weird like that. But it's it's a, it's an awful language. They don't have integers. Everything's a floating point in JavaScript to relay back to the earlier conversation. Now, yes, some engines do implement integers, but there is no integer called for in the JavaScript language standard. An integer in JavaScript is still actually a floating point, and it just does the rounding for you. It's not nice. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. So I do like the challenge of figuring something out. I like, um, oh, my last two, my, my last uh, three weeks at my job was basically taking all of the projects that I had queued up for the next three months and either completing them or hand or figuring out how to hand them off. And I basically sent, gave a three dozen project project archive to everybody that I worked with. Like here are, here are, here are my folders with the date, the project name, doc, code, data, download folders under each of them. Um, so, and 
and just sprinted really hard and did a couple of months worth of work within about two weeks. Um, and now I'm shot. Um, but it fun, wasn't it? It was very fun. Um, it, it's nice to leave a company being generous um, with my work. And then, yes, leaving them a, a pile of cookies with a grumpy looking pug saying, enjoy the damned cookies um, <laughs> over my old desk. Um, I, I, I had to do it. Um, and my old boss is, is laughing at that because he thought it was awesome. Um, no, that but, is rather awesome. Yeah. Um, but what I'm coming around to is I'm really enjoying this interface between culture and, and the tech um, and really uh, trying to wrap my... Uh, uh, what makes a stable and sustainable culture? Um, and that comes down to having a internally consistent set of principles and values that you express in an externally and consistent manner. Um, how you speak to other people, um, how you do your work, um, how you uphold their capacity to ex discover and express their own values in a compassionate and consistent way. Um, so this is this is this is kind of bizarre. Like, how, I'm not supposed I'm I'm supposed to be a techie. I'm supposed to be a nerd. What is all of this like soft skill stuff that I'm getting into? This is weird. Um, but it ends up um, being how my own thought processes are evolving to. How do you support people doing something complex? Because code, it's it, like mountains of code are increasingly complex. Um, and so you need to manage a complex dynamic system, culture, to effectively manage another complex dynamic system, mountains of code. Well, and arguably, um, the only reason the code is there is to manage other increasingly complex systems, e.g. going through the visual yes. data from... So the thing is, is that really what you're doing is you're not moving away from programming, you're getting closer to the heart of programming, which is how to manage a complex system logically. Yes. Um, so one of, the, one of the things that really... Like, I've known about unit testing and so on for like the past 10 years, and just like whatever you know and i don't want to do all that extra work and la 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 but for the code that i've written in the last six to nine months i've like just the 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 team uh the team um ethic became more oriented around automated testing um you know doing unit tests integration tests and end-to-end -end tests and different seams in between them and just really committing to do that and watched how because of that testing ethic that for a very large project, um, my component became the most robust and resilient of, of the parts in, in motion and how that automated that, that testing ethic, actually does build more resilient code and resilient projects helps me know um, sometimes the conflicting design elements that lead to what we call bugs more effectively. So there's 
there's the design intention of the program we're writing on a small scale in a large scale. And what I'm finding is sometimes the design intent of what I'm writing on a small scale um, contradicts the design intention of what I'm writing on a large scale. And that cause that contradiction causes um, errors and crashes and seg faults and stack traces and, and whatnot. And it's getting those design intents in line with one another, all the while requirements are changing. And the requirements changing means that your design, your, your overall global design intent is changing. And so you need to go back and look at all your local design intents that were, were written with a different global design intent in mind. Um, and well, that, so, yeah. That, that's reminding me of how so many programmers like to say, well, it's not a bug, it's a feature. And it's, it's the, the, the fact is, is that we often forget that the spec can have bugs. The design can have bugs. Case in point, Telegram, I, I had to, I had to file a bug report with Telegram because something wasn't, wasn't quite working, but it was connected to another feature where everyone is complaining that, well, when, when a Telegram message comes into the Telegram chat client, that it, the window immediately takes over. If you have this option checked that says, you know, uh, uh, focus attention or bring attention to the window. Now, what the people with QT, which is the framework, intended with this feature, it's the, it's the window alert function in QT5, is that it would flash the little thing in the tray. But apparently they did something a little bit strange because they and nobody else, when they use that functionality in GNOME, um... It doesn't flash the tray. It brings the window to focus and grab the keyboard. And why it does that is not entirely clear. It does this in Cinnamon as well. Any of the GNOME-based um, or GNOME 3-based, you know, G, uh, uh, desktop environments, they, they will do this. They will, and it's, it doesn't happen with any of the other frameworks, just with QT5. And so it's, it's, it's a bug. But for the longest time, people were reporting this with Telegram, which is built in QT5, and they're saying, well, no, 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 it's, 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 it's not a bug, it's a feature. And, well, it's, it's just, you know, uh, your, your desktop environment is just doing something weird. And it, you know, and so it, it, took all, it took something like two dozen reports before the people over at Telegram finally figured out, oh, this is a bug, not a feature. It's like, if your feature is causing your users to complain on a regular basis, not a feature, it's a bug. You know, yes, you may have intended it to do this, but if the user is not intending it to do this and users are consistently complaining about it, it's a bug. No matter how intentional the bug is. Yeah, and that's, that wraps around to um, who's the programming for? Is it for the programmer or the user? And it's always, you know, the the adage of the customer is always right can be pushed a little too far, but sometimes it's very appropriate. Uh, who's going to be inhabiting what you're designing and then the, you get customer personas and customer narratives and how do you inhabit the perspective of your um user such that they can have the best experience and thus there is this whole developing domain over the last five ten years of user experience how, what is the user experiencing in the interface? So um, one of my friends who just moved to Google as a user experience manager, um, 
was saying he was working at Mayo and he wanted everything to be smooth and beautiful and Mac-like, you know, just give a real elegant interface. And he was trying to give this to um, MD, MD, PhDs, uh, surgeons, you know, physicians and whatnot. And they were saying like, this is awful because there's the information isn't dense enough. Um, we don't like it. It, it doesn't, it, 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 it's too, it, it's insulting to us because the information isn't dense enough. And so he was building something for the wrong user profile. Whereas you or I using that interface was like, oh, this is nice, elegant. There's a lot of white space, you know, but the doctors are like, no, we don't like it. It's not dense enough. Well, um, I mean, there, it, 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 that's probably the reason why for the longest time, you know, say what you want about Windows or Mac. But regardless, there's no getting away from the fact that Windows has dominated the business and science field up until Linux became mature enough to, to move in. And Linux d uh, typically mirrors Windows aesthetic, you know, as much as they would be insulted by my saying that is the reality. The aesthetic that Windows set with 98 and onward is mirrored by much of the Linux ecosystem. Mac, on the other hand, there are some fringes of, you know, there's some fringes and some corners of, of, of the Linux world that look like Mac, but the Mac aesthetic was more popular with designers and artists and musicians and the creative sciences, whereas the, 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 the hard sciences were all gravitating towards Windows. And I think it, I think what you mentioned has, has a lot to do with it. It's the density of information. Mac's always been obsessed with white space and mostly invisible buttons. And Windows is, is more interested in throwing all the information on the screen and handing you a scroll bar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this yeah, that's reflected in what these different users are, are looking for. And you have different companies like uh, Epic. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Epic. They're one of the largest um, providers of electronic medical record interfaces in the world. They basically, they... They manage at least one third of all the uh, medical records in the United States. They're based out of Madison, Wisconsin. Um, Mayo Clinic just had a $1 billion um, contract with them to use Epic as their um, electronic medical uh, record keeping system. Uh, but, you know, Mayo is, a, is the largest employer in Minnesota. It also has a, uh, it also has um, sites in like full hospital sites in both Arizona and um, Florida. They're basically you will never be with uh, outside if you live in the United States. You will never be out in continental United States. You will never be more than a three hour flight away from a Mayo installation. Um, so they're huge, um, and so. And the, the design ethic for Epic has always been incredibly um, information dense. Of course, they program in this odd, awkward language called mumps. Um, oh, mumps. Mumps. Oh, I've heard stories of this. Thing. No, no, no. <laughs> and I've, actually, I've, I've gone to like um, uh, a friend of mine who, who writes uh, point of sale systems in mumps. Um, and I looked at the, it, it's basically like, it, it's, it's kind of this, uh, weird mashup between basic and COBOL that I, or, or something in COBOL, because it's all very like 
column-oriented, your commands, but it may have evolved since I last saw it. Um, it's a committee-designed language, in case you're wondering why it's this terrible. Okay, but I, you know, I, I, I interviewed for Epic and, you know, learned, learned enough mumps to run away screaming. Um, <laughs> Normally we get vaccinated against mumps, so, I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> but Epic is building a lot of interfaces for their flagship product written mainly in mumps to other kinds of um, systems such as you know, like deep learning systems written in C and Python um, and other artificial intelligence algorithms. Um, but the way they like to present it is in a very particular mumps driven interface um, that's very information dense. That is unlike anything that I've ever seen on Windows, Linux, or Mac. Wow. Information density. I want to see that. No. I wish I yeah. wish more people would appreciate it though, because like modern web design, I've never taken to it. I like nineties websites still because back in the nineties, you go to a website. It is information. You are going there for information. It is information heavy. I mean, yes, the, the templates from front page should have been burned. But the, you know, it was information centric. Now you go to a website and it, it's it's a whole lot of doom scrolling and and scroll hijacking and all sorts of weird effects. And it's like 90% huge graphics and 10% text. And you're scrolling for about 20 minutes just to find the contact email address for you know, on a portfolio, and it, it's like, just give me the information. You know, again, maybe that's just maybe that's just my own, you know, information based aesthetic going on there. But so, you know, I, I agree with you because um, I, have you have you encountered Tristan Harris at all? No, I have not. Although I do have to briefly say this conversation is reminding me of Mitch Kapoor's uh, talk, the Software Design Manifesto. <laughs> um, no, 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 no. Um, I'm just saying that these certain ethics have been gravitating away from um, um, a cortical engagement of information to more a subcortical engagement of our emotional reactions. Mm, so yeah. Graphics heavy is more um, midbrain. It's, it's appealing to your emotions rather than appealing, appealing to your reasoning capacity. This is also consistent with um, Jonathan Haidt's book, like uh, The Happiness Hypothesis. And um, what is it? Um, um, the Righteous Mind, in which he compares our, our, our brains and our, our, our neocortex to a monkey. And the the subcortical regions to an elephant where the, the monkey rides on top of the elephant and is for all senses and purposes, a, a servant of the elephant. Um, and so the way that marketing works is it appeals to the elephant, not the monkey. Mm. Makes sense. And so the websites that we're all complaining about right now, they're appealing to our emotional reactive selves rather than our intellectual selves. Um, and Tristan Harris, who was featured in Netflix's much maligned documentary called The Social Dilemma, he's from like a, 
I forget, Institute of Human Centered Design. Um, he's, he, he used to work at Google and he's saying like, this is how um, interacting with computing is these days, is it's all appealing to your um, emotional reactions rather than your intellectual engagement. Well, this suddenly explains why I keep switching my theme on Linux to look like Windows 98. <clears throat> what? Yes. Yeah, I, I have. There's there's a theme for it. You can actually switch. To, you can make your Linux look like look like Windows 98. It makes me feel very calm and centered when I see that, that oh, slight okay. gray. And, yeah, it's wonderful. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. I never liked Windows 98. Really? Yeah. I was always more of a more of a 2000 guy. Um, oh, I really? Thought, Windows well, they have a theme for them too. I know. You can get the I, Windows 2000 theme if you like, but yeah. Windows 95 was also kind of horrid, and Windows ME. Uh. Well, I, I often say that every other release of Windows is terrible. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Because 3.1 was solid. 95 was a disaster. 98 was was solid from a technical standpoint, and then ME was a disaster. XP was solid. Vista was a disaster. Seven was solid. Eight was a disaster. Forget 8.1. That's still eight. 10 is solid. 10 is so solid. So the next version that they're going to come out with, just a heads up, when they announce the new version, <laughs> stay on 10. It will not work. <laughs> I, um, I am never, ever... Uh, I, I only interact with Windows if I have to. Yeah. Well, I, I, I named my Windows computer here. I, the, the, its network name is actually Pandorica. So if you watch Doctor Who, you will understand what that's going to Oh, yes. To. Oh, yes. So we, we always like to we always like to ask this question um, before we completely run out of time here and our coffee gets cold. Um, what is the weirdest bug you've ever encountered? Oh God! I already I already I don't tend to keep track of my bugs. Um, <laughs> that's because I'm I'm usually problem solving around them and getting. So I wouldn't say it was. <sighs> Hold on. Um, doo -doo 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 -doo. um, I would say the weirdest bug I ever encountered was the f uh, half a million lines of code that I was left to manage by a bunch of undergraduates at the University of Washington, <laughs> um, uh, that they basically wrote to interface with one another um in five different languages that itself was the bug that <laughs> that's the bug right there the um, entire project was the bug the entire pro i'm sorry <laughs> okay you have a php front end that is interacted with like you you click a little icon on there and it fires up a matlab gui so that you could segment brain tumors and then you do analysis um in uh, Python or some other language, um, and you're, and then you have another application written in Java that's interacting with um, Bash-centric scripts. To, <gasps> so I'm sorry, but <laughs> it's it's just like written in five plus different languages, and to debug. To actually debug the entire pipeline, you have to dip into one language, come out, go into another one. It's just crazy. It's just, no, no, this is insane. Finanigan's wake, the code. Yes. yes, 
Exactly. Let me guess. There were five students who wrote it, weren't there? Yes. Okay, I know this because of Conway's Law, and I brought this up every conversation we've ever had in this co- in, in this in this cafe. Any organization that designs a system, defined broadly, will produce a design whose structure is a copy of the organization's communication structure. <sighs> well, that explains a lot. <laughs> um... <laughs> And I uh, guarantee most of them did not agree on a lot of things. Um, no, um, because the, the principal investigator of that particular lab was basically, oh, I have all this money. I'm going to throw it at these students and have them make something wonderful for me without actually telling them what I want. Um, <laughs> so, and I will, if they, if they present to me something to me that... Um, um, does it adhere to what I want? I'm just going to tell them what I don't want rather than what I want. I'm going to define it in the negative. And of course, you know, um, <clears throat> she had a, a, a the, the initial front end of her website was, was designed in pink. Ugh. She was a very, she was a very pink and black um, design fashion individual. I could appreciate how the pink and black looked on her and commented on how it well it honestly commented on, on how it well because if you're going to compliment somebody um you, you need to be authentic about it because it's it's bs otherwise so but it did not work on a web web page design at all um they eventually went to um a two-toned blue design which was much much better um so the communication was not very great from the top of that particular lab luckily for me um there was an individual that managed a manager of that lab that communicated much more effectively um and he was probably the principal reason that um i have been encouraged along along the career path um for the last six years since um was because of his mentorship. And that is what makes me focus um, on mentorship as a powerful force um, in any kind of project I, I work on. Yeah, I believe you told me on one occasion you when, when you're networking, you know, if if whenever you, you get somewhere, whenever you achieve something, whenever a door opens, take the time to thank the people that made it possible for you to go through that door. Yes. In the first place. Yes. So these are my, like, this is, this is I, I cluster these in my touchstones of networking. How do you build and maintain a network? Um, is first express your interest in other people. Do not fake it. If you find yourself faking curiosity in what other people do, politely excuse yourself, save yourself time in them. Secondly, share interests of one person to another. It's like, oh, here's an interest. I love talking to Jason. Jason, please meet Drew. Um, And here are complementary interests, and hopefully there's synergy there. Um, Get permission to introduce. Um, It's called a double opt-in introduction get permission to introduce people to one another because when you do that you end up looking really good um thirdly actively demonstrate how your skills and interests add value to theirs it's all about adding value your interest is valuable sharing people's interests is valuable 
you are valuable. Your skills, your insight, your perspective is valuable. Um, use these three. Now, when net networking for a purpose or an objective, the best line I heard was from a real estate agent. Um, this is how I, this is my script. He says, "Who do you know that can help me with X, Y, Z? Who do you know?" Who do you know that can help me with this 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 application? Oh, you can't. Okay, who who do you know? And so it helps you um, traverse um, an iterative network of referrals, getting to the objective, going back through your chain of referrals, and thanking each node strengthens your network because you tell them that they're contribution to you and your your objective was extremely valuable and that you are available to do this for them this all of these like situationally discovered touchstones or guidelines have helped me create a network that spans decades so when can we expect the book <laughs> <laughs> I, I writing is not writing Writing that way um, is not a forte of mine, so it might take a while. I've been actually asked that question by a friend of mine. Um, oh, I met almost 25 years ago. Um, she was from Dhaka, Bangladesh, um, and she is now in Norway, married to a Norwegian man, and she contacted me after 25 years on LinkedIn, and we had this conversation, and I'm like bouncing ideas around her. She's like, where's the book? Darn it. <laughs> where's the beef? Sorry, that's been in my head recently. Oh, yeah. That old commercial. It's under the pickle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! Well, this is this has been an absolute blast. Likewise, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and look forward to having coffee with you, Jason. Should you ever be in Minneapolis, and I anticipate you will be. Yes, I certainly hope I am soon. It'll be after pandemic, I'm sure, but um, yeah, it's all good. Quite probably, but at least we can have coffee in this cafe because the pandemic can't get in here. There's a there's a, there's a there's a wellness filter that the unicorn keeps in place. Anti -viral. Probably I'm sitting there just in utter awe of you. <laughs> Antiviral software, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Antiviral unicorn. <laughs> oh, wonderful! No, I have enjoyed myself thoroughly. Thank you for uh, bringing me on for this discussion and um, some introductions to not only. It was absolute pleasure to meet you. Um, let's keep in touch. I'd love to do something like this again um, in the future. Absolutely. Thank you. Bug Hunters Cafe. This is Marta. Yes, we are located online at bughunters.cafe and on Twitter, Dev, and Instagram as Bug Hunters Cafe. Yes, we're still giving away a half-made paper towel holder with every order. Requests? Like the music. All our music is provided by audionautics.com. We have the link on our website. Oh, for the paper towel holders? Um, I suppose. What did you have in mind? 
one made of cedar? Well, we might. Sir, I will make you a deal. If you take 31 paper towel holders of my hands, I'll see that one of them is made of cedar. A pleasure doing business with you.